Welcome to 66 Lessons for Life, the weekly radio program recorded live at the Naples Conference Center in Naples, Florida. Taught by our teacher, John Garepa, an attorney who guides us in the way of wisdom with a biblical worldview. You're invited to join us for the study. We are continuing to study uh, in Joshua. We are in Joshua chapter 8. And just to give you a brief recap, we know that the lessons that we've studied so far uh, involve Joshua and the Jewish people being blessed by God to take down the city of Jericho. Uh, The walls fell down. They came in and conquered it and took it out. And that was the first foray into the promised land that God had given them. And then they went on and and tried to take the city of Ai, that's A-I. But what happened at that point when they did that is they, they did not realize that there was sin within their midst, that God had given a commandment that none of the personal property, none of the personal property, uh, that they would find in, in Jericho would be theirs, that it would all go to the kingdom of God, to the treasury of the Lord. And instead, uh, Achan secreted gold and silver and other valuable possessions in his tent in violation of God's will. As a result of that, God was not with them when they went to take the city of Ai. God withheld their blessing, and they suffered a terrible defeat. They were routed. Men were killed, and so we saw last week how God ferreted out the sin, how he went family by family by family through several million people until finally they found the guilty party, and we saw that your sin can never be hidden from God. Your sin can never be hidden from God. And what we saw there is why many of us are not being blessed in ministry or not being used by God. And what I said last week, and I'll reiterate it again, This message is for saved people. I'm not giving this message to pagans, people that have not accepted God. But I'm giving this message to people who are God's people, who have been called by God, who are walking with God. And yet what happens is that even in that walk, we can take things can come into our lives and and become impediments. And it's sin. It is primarily sin. And so what happens when sin comes into your life? Uh, Many of us kind of compartmentalize that and say, that's my thing. I can handle it. I'm weak. God knows I'm weak. This is between me and God, and God God is very forgiving, and he'll let me get away with it. And the answer is no, he will not. No, he will not let you get away with it. You're called. You're called to be a child of God, and he has a ministry for you, uh, and he has a testimony for you. And, and if you want to be used by God, and be an example to this world of what a child of God should be, God wants your act cleaned up. And so you see it here, even within countries, that the entire country of Israel, uh, in its nascent uh, formation, is being punished for the sin of this one man. And I spoke to you and said that the reason for that, the reason for that is that Israel was, at that point, a theocracy that God was using them to be effectively the poster child to the world, the priests, the kingdom priests to the world of what his kingdom was about, who he was, his holiness, his righteousness. And he would not tolerate, he would not tolerate iniquity. Uh, And so he did that. And you know, I said last week, I gave you the analogy that in the New Testament church, we saw the same thing in the early days as the church was just starting, as God was very protective of the new church, knew that that new church had to show the world 
what it meant to be a Christian, what the new covenant was about. And we spoke about this, and we saw that when Ananias and Sapphira came forward to the new church and wanted to get the credit that all the other people were doing of selling their property and bringing their property in to the church so that it would be communally divided up to those who didn't have it, that they secreted half of it. They gave half, but they kept half, half back, and they lied to the apostles. And so, you know, some of you would say, oh, that's a, that's a tough one. They gave half. Yes, they gave half, but they withhold half. And effectively, what that becomes is stealing from God. All right? Stealing from God. God is very protective about this. Stealing from God. Uh, and so uh, if they had merely come in and said, no, we didn't sell, we didn't give everything, we're only giving half, God would, God would not have done that. He would not have struck them dead. But it's because they lied to God. They misrepresented to God who they were. And God was not going to allow hypocrisy and sin to get into the church at an early stage. He was giving it as an example. And so now you see, now you see, Israel and Joshua ferret out Achan. Achan's, uh, Achan is uh, stoned to death. Not only Achan, but his entire family. And I told you that the only reason I believe that his family also uh, was stoned was that most likely they were co-conspirators in the crime. This God would never, po never punish the children for the sins of the father. We've already known that. That's been clear. God's made that edict. But if the sins of the children flow from the sins of the father and they are mired together in a conspiratorial fashion, well, then that sin goes through the entire family. And there it did. Not through not only the children, but through everything that they owned. And so every aspect of what Achan owned, all of his animals, all of his possessions, were burned uh, and expiated effectively uh, from the world. And so you understand how God views sin. And so then, then God says to Joshua, I will bless you. Now you will be able to go and retake the city. And we studied that last week, how Joshua then, with, with the entire army of the children of Israel, took, took uh, the city of Ai, took it. God gave them the actual battle plan, this brilliant battle plan in which they set up three separate forces, one to cause the people in the city to come out and, and come after the main body, another to come into the city when they evacuated the city and burned the city to the ground, and a third in a pincer movement to come back and to take the inhabitants of Ai when they would try to get back into the city and cut them down. And so what happens? The entire city of Ai is destroyed. The entire city of Ai is destroyed. And we know from reading scripture uh, that God allowed these pagans hundreds upon hundreds of years to get their lives straightened out. We know that. And later on, I'll give you a verse that talks about that where God will talk to Abraham and speak to Abram about the fact that he's giving them the promised land, but that the, the inhabitants of the promised land, their sin has not yet ripened. And that would be about 400 to 450 years before this time. So think about God. And you wonder about God. And you look and you'll see people getting away with things. You'll see conduct that's uh, horrendous. And you're wondering, when is God going to strike them down? When is God going to step? I want to assure you, it doesn't escape God's view. But he is very patient. He waits. He gives them time. But eventually the curtain comes down. And we're going to talk about that. And so here we are now. 
uh, as we've recapped where we have, where we have been. Now we're going to see what happens after the victory. What happens after the victory? And I'll call this the pilgrimage after the battle. And we're now in uh, uh, chapter 8 of Joshua, verse 30. Then Joshua built on Mount Ebal an altar to the God, to the Lord, the God of Israel, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the Israelites. He built it according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones on which no iron tool had been used. On it they offered to the Lord burnt offerings and sacrificed fellowship offerings. There, in the presence of the Israelites, Joshua copied on stones the law of Moses, which he had written. All Israel, aliens and citizens alike, with their elders, officials, and judges, were standing on both sides of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, facing those who carried it, the priests, who were Levites. Half of the people stood in front of Mount Gerizim, and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had formally commanded when he gave instructions to bless the people of Israel. Afterward, Joshua read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curses, just as it is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read to the whole assembly of Israel, including the women and children and all the aliens who lived among them. So what an amazing passage this is. Now, what we see here is that Joshua effectively is now thanking God, sanctifying the people for the fact that God was with them that God had blessed them, that God had given them the victory. And that's one of the lessons of our lives, that we have to understand this, to constantly be in communion with God, thanking him. How many of you thank him for just the fact that you've got good health? Amen. Honestly, that you've got good health, that you're here living in Naples. Can you believe you're living in Naples? God has brought you here to Naples, that he's brought you to a Bible study like this, to thank God that he has sustained you. Uh, many of you guys are in your 80s. Some of you are in your 90s. Did you thank him that he's kept you alive during that period of time uh, and allowed you to enjoy the benefits of your family? How many blessings God bestows upon us and how seldom do we really come and thank God? Well, this whole uh, panoply that I've just reviewed for you was spoken by Moses to the people of Israel before they ever set foot in the promised land. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 27. And I'm going to give you the theological pretext for what is going on here. Deuteronomy 27, verse 1. Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, keep all these commands that I give you today. When you have crossed the Jordan into the land the Lord your God has given you, set up some large stones and coat them with plaster. Write on them all the words of this law when you have crossed over to enter the land, the Lord your God is giving you a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. And when you have crossed the Jordan, set up these stones on Mount Ebal, as I command you today, and coat them with plaster. Build there an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. Do not use any iron tool upon them. Build the altar of the Lord your God with field stones and offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. Sacrifice fellowship offerings there, eating them and rejoicing in the presence of the Lord your God. And you shall write very clearly all the words of this law on these stones 
you have set up. So what a powerful picture this is of Moses telling them in advance, this is what you're going to do. This is how you're going to worship. This is how you're going to sacrifice. And so what you see here is the very first principle of our priorities in life in that we need to have a plan of God. We need to be cognizant that God is blessing us. And when we fail to be in communion with God and thank God for what he's doing for us, ultimately we will face failure. Um, And this is quite evident here. And so it's very interesting why this location was chosen. Why did he go to this location? Uh, Well, it's interesting because historians tell us that this is constructed as if it were a natural amphitheater. You have two mountains that are about 3,000 feet high. This is an elevation of about 1,000. There's like a natural floor, plateau. And on each side, these two mountains come together. And so uh, a million people or two million people could be there and yet clearly hear somebody speaking as the voice reverberates off of both mountain sides. Can you imagine that? It's an amazing thing. And so you see this, and so uh, uh, this ceremony that's taking place as, as they're instructed to build these altars and do the sacrifice, three things come to mind as we do this. Uh, first, an altar of uncut stones in which offerings were made on the uncut stones. And so here you have it. The, the false gods, the pagans had fallen before the one and true God. And so they're honest, they're worshiping God, the true God, and thanking him for what he has done. Uh, and so second, at the same place, uh, on Ebal, but with different stones most likely, Joshua also set up some large stones in which he copied the law of Moses. Most likely we're dealing there with, with the Ten Commandments and writing them out uh, in, uh, on the stone so that the people can see it and understand that this is the law. And then third, Joshua read the law to the people. Uh, And half the people were positioned on one mountainside, half the people were positioned on the other side. uh, And uh, as he's reading the law to the one side, he then reads the curses of the law, the violations of the law to the other side. And so uh, as he reads the blessings, this is the law, the one, one side responds, amen. Then he reads the curses. And the other side responds, amen. Can you imagine this congregation? Uh, It's like this great communal church service in which they're accepting. This is the law. These are the curses. This is what God wants from us. This is what God does not want from us. And so what you understand when you see this and you read this is that God is drilling into them that their very success the very success of their future, the very success of their spiritual lives will totally be dependent upon them following the law. Totally be dependent upon the following of the law. And at the same time that he's doing this, there's an altar in which sacrifices will be made, in which those, that altar will symbolize the need for forgiveness. We'll, we'll, we'll emphasize the fact for a sacrificial sacrifice. So even as they are acknowledging, this is the law. These are the curses. We will follow the law. Eventually, we will break the law because we can't live by the law. Nobody can live by the law. And then you will see the sacrifices. And what it all is doing is emphasizing 
the, the eventual substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I told you right from the beginning that God has drilled this home to the Jewish people for 1,400 years, that, that they needed to live by the law, but that the law would never save them. The law would never save them. And so even as God is drilling this into them now, he's drilling into the fact that, that they need, that they need uh, a savior, that they need a substitutionary sacrifice. And here's the thing. As we know from the Day of Atonement that they will do every single year, the Day of Atonement, every single year, what will happen? There will be massive animal sacrifice, and the bloodletting will go, and the ritual cleansings will take place, and yet one year later they will have to do it again. They will have to do it again. They will have to repeat it because the sins of the people could never be wiped away by the blood of animals. It could only be covered up. But eventually, the sins of the people would be forgiven, would be wiped away forever when Jesus Christ comes back. And so as you study this passage and you drill down into the passage, the first thing God did for them there was to point to grace and his solution by faith. Now you're saying, how do you get that from this reading? Well, I get this because at the same time that God sets up the law and elevates the law, he builds the altar. It's like the same time God gave them Moses, he gave them Aaron. It's like God says, here's the law, here's the lawgiver, and by the way, I know you're going to fall. I know you can't do this. And so here's the, the high priest who's going to do the sacrifices for you. And so this is why, uh, in, in fact, in our, in our service, in our walk with God, we will always fall. We will always fail. We cannot live up to the law. But, but through Jesus Christ, through the grace of Jesus Christ, we will have a successful spiritual walk. And so Moses uh, gave them the command to build the altar on Mount Ebal. Uh, and that was the place where the curses for disobedience were to be read. Uh, and the altar was built there. Now, how about that? The place where the curses for the disobedience were being read was put on the mountain where that's where the altar was built for sacrifice. He didn't build the altar when he was speaking about the acts of righteousness. He built the altar when he was speaking about the acts of disobedience. And so look exactly at how this altar is constructed. The altar was constructed of uncut stones without any human workmanship. How do you like that? Field stones, no iron tools, no man-made intervention on the cutting of the stones. The stones would, that would represent the fact that there is no humanism involved in the act of salvation and forgiveness. God was demonstrating to them that in this altar, where you will sacrifice, where I will forgive you, this altar will come together totally by the hand of God. It will not be involved in human intervention at all, other than the fact you will collect them and put them together, but you will not cut a single stone. And so it shows that human beings can add nothing to the work of God for salvation or spirituality. I want to drill that home to you. This is a key lesson that you have to learn and tell the world. You can't work your way into salvation. And there's so many people that still fall for this, that think in some way, in some shape or form, they're going to work their way to heaven. 
and here's the thing. People will then say to me, well, then why, why, why not? What about good works? Yes, good works are important. Your faith is demonstrated through good works, but the good works only matter to God when you first accept Jesus Christ. Because other than that, any other work that you do as a human being is going to be tainted by your pride. Oh, you see that in the world. I'll give you a big check, but I want to make sure my name, my name is on the building. You understand? That's important. I need to have my name there. Or I need to be elevated. I need to be praised. Well, if you're a Christian and you're a godly person, you're doing these things irrespective of that. But if you're not, pride enters in. Pride enters in, and God says it. That's why God says, your righteousness is, li is like filthy rags. Why do you think that? God sees our heart. So in the heart of humanity is inner sin, iniquity. And so God is saying here, here's the altar. I'm giving you the altar. It has nothing to do with you. You have, an, you have no aspect whatsoever in salvation. It is totally God. You can add not one wit, not one wit to what I give for you. And as I spoke to you, and as I've really prayed about this, and this has been a lesson for me myself, uh, I've learned that even when you reach up from the muck and mire of your life and recognize, Lord, I need you, the act that you did that says, Lord, I need you, that mustard seed of faith that allowed you to say that that mustard seed of faith was given to you by God. How do you like that? So even the very essence of that basic element of faith that God gave you to reach up and to say, I'm lost. I'm lost. Help me. Even that came from God. So what does this mean? It means this. You had nothing to do with your salvation. Nothing other than to recognize I'm ruined. And then God begins to pour it into your life. And you see this, this lesson here and you, and you understand it. It is the grace of God that he has saved us. And this is what God is trying to teach to the Jewish people 1400 years ago and for the succeeding uh, thousand years. You need a savior. You can't do this by your works. You can't be a legalist. You cannot abide by the law. You can't live by the law. You're violating the law every minute of the day. There is no element of the law that you can live by. That's what God is showing them. That's what God is demonstrating. You need an altar. You need to ask for forgiveness. And ultimately, you see, if they had done this right, and they had come with a broken heart, and gone and done the sacrifices the right way, and studied the scripture, and studied the scripture. And here's the problem. The rabbis failed the Jewish people miserably because in my study what I found is that the last four or 500 years before Christ, they did not study the prophetic books. They weren't taught Daniel. They weren't taught Zechariah. They weren't taught Jeremiah. They weren't taught the very prophetic passages in which God pictured Jesus Christ coming to save them. And so here they are, not being taught, not reading the scripture, totally involved in the law, elevating the law as if the law is the be-all and end-all, and not recognizing that, in fact, God is sending them the Son of God himself to come and save them. 
Uh, and the essence of that is when the wise men come in and look, and, and because they had studied and read scripture and looked at the stars and knew that, that some great king, Messiah, was being born, and go to Herod and say, where is the king of the Jews? And Herod knew enough. Herod knew enough to ask his spiritual advisors, where is it in the Bible? Where is it in the scriptures? And what do they say? Well, it most likely is Bethlehem. How do you like that? So when they looked, they could find it. When they searched, they could see it. Bethlehem. Bethlehem. That's like saying a truck stop. It's a truck stop about 75 miles outside of Jerusalem. The king of the Jews is going to be, be there. And so you see what happens with Herod. It says, well, when you find him, when you find him, let me know so I can go and worship the child. Yes, I'll worship the child. I'll wipe out every male two years old or younger. I'll kill them all. You see Satan just completely taking over that position. And so you understand what God is doing here. And this is a great passage. This is, this is why we study this. We study these passages because it enlarges the message of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ. We understand grace. We understand forgiveness because we see it in factual form demonstrated on the people of Israel. And then we go into the New Testament and we see it enveloped even further. And so we see it. So what does this mean to us? What's the application for you today? What are you going to leave here with? What, what reminder will this be for you? Well, there's several things. And the first thing is this. We must recognize our sinfulness and come to God as sinners. That's a base issue for every single one of us. I don't care that you've given your heart to God. That's good. I don't care that you're saved. That's great. You need to be saved. But this is an ongoing daily act of sanctification. Because every one of us, even as we walk, we get dirt on our clothing, don't we? Right? You're walking, and the dirt is coming up, and the dust is coming up, and you live in a world full of evil, and it hits you, and it hits you. And you know, sometimes that mud sticks to the wall. You understand? And the only way, the only way you can have a successful walk is to constantly say to God, Lord, forgive me, sanctify me, protect me. You know, one of the things that I say to God always, I do this prayer, I say, Lord, please protect me. Don't let me ruin this ministry. Don't let me ruin this ministry. Don't let me ruin what you've given me because I'm perfectly capable of that. It's just so natural for me to wreck it because I know where my weaknesses are. And so what I say to God is, God, protect me from my own weaknesses. Deliver me from the places where I shouldn't be. Give me an elevated sense of conscience. This is a prayer all the issues me making. You know what your issues are. My issues aren't yours. Each one of us has a whole different set of issues. Some of us, it's lust. Some of us, it's power. Some of us, it's materialism. But it's something because you're walking around in flesh. And when you walk around in flesh, this is what happens. Make no mistake about it. The only time this is all going to be ended for you is when they put dirt on you. When they put dirt on you and finally you, you get the state of glorification when you come to, to see God face to face. But prior to that point, this is going to be an ongoing issue for all of you. I want you to turn, please, to Romans chapter 3. Another example of using the Old Testament to prove the New Testament and vice versa. Romans chapter 3. 
And now we're going to talk about the righteousness. What happens when we sacrifice? What happens when we come and ask for forgiveness? What is the substitutionary sacrifice all about? What was Moses drilling down to them in that sacrificial period? Verse 21. But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. Let's stop right there. To which the law and the prophets testify. How do you like that? How do you like that? The righteousness of God apart from the law. God's righteousness apart from the law has now been made known. Made known how? Because it's testified to by the law and by the prophets. Whoa, that's pretty serious. All right, verse 22. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Got that? The righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. There it is. You've been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. Every single one of you have accepted Jesus Christ. I don't care what your sin was. Oh, but it was big. Oh, it was really big. Well, let me tell you something. That's why the grace of God is really big. All right? There's nothing that you could have done that would not be wiped away by the blood of Jesus Christ. So don't sit there and say, oh, I can't be forgiven. I was such a bad person. I did this. My heart was evil. Let me tell you something. We're all evil. We have all sinned. Every single one of us. There's not one person in any seat in this room who has not fallen short of the glory of God. That's why he gave you the law. So you would see the law and you'd say, well, I can't do that. Oh, I can't do that. I'll never be able to do that. Good. God says, good. We're getting somewhere now. <laughs> now I'm getting your attention. You're right. You can't do it. It's imp I gave it to you so you would say, I can't do it. Help me. Now, now. There it is. Help me. Help me. And it's at that moment that faith comes down. I mean, this is such a glorious passage. You realize, I mean, you know people who are in the world who are truly lost and in desperate shape. And some of these people say, well, someday I'm going to clean up my act and I'll, I'll see you in church. You're going to clean up your act? You'll never clean up your act. The fact that you say I can clean up my act is proof positive that you can't clean up your act. You'll never clean up your act. Oh, maybe you'll put a coat of paint on it. You understand. You'll put a coat of paint on it. You'll whitewash it. You know, you'll whitewash it. Yeah, look at Joe. He's doing a lot of good things. He's a pretty good man. But then in his heart, Joe is living unto himself. Joe is his own God. Joe is an idolater. Joe is into so many things, and God sees it. And so you see this incredible verse that, the, that you are justified solely by your faith and redemption in Jesus Christ. Verse 25, God presented him... Uh, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice. Underline this, and we're going to talk about this 
later. His justice, that's God's justice. Because in his forbearance, and forbearance is another word of forgiveness, all right? Forbearance, that's a contract term in law, meaning I will not do this, which I am entitled to do to you. I will not do this. I will forbear it if you do this. All right? Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. This is a verse you should keep in your wallet. This really ties up why we come to Christ. This is why we serve God. He has taken everything in your past and wiped it out. Wiped it out. He could have held it against you. But here's what he says. I'm forgiving you. I'm not punishing you. It is all done. How is it all done? It's done because Jesus paid the price for your sin on the cross. You are fully justified in Jesus Christ. What a major message this is. You can't preach this enough. You can't speak to people enough about this. And that's what God is drilling into their heads right there at Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. Right there. You see what happened? You see how I blessed you? Do you see how I punished you? Do you see the understanding? Are you getting a sense of what it means to be God's person? You want the blessings of, his, of, of him? You want to be touched by him? You want to be used by him? Well, this is what it takes. And so you recognize, first of all, that our sinfulness uh, is profound and that the only way we can come to God is sinners. Don't ever come to God uh, as a righteous person. I heard somebody say to me, who was a guy who believed that he was uh, a Christian say to me, I am a righteous man. Oh, boy. That was a bad thing for me to hear. <laughs> Don't ever say that to, to me. Don't ever say you are a righteous man. You are not a righteous man. You are a sinner saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. All right? Let's get a communal amen on that. All right. You are a sinner saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. You are not righteous. I don't care what you do. You could give all your money away. Join a leper colony. You understand? You are not righteous. But here's the difference. When you accept Jesus Christ and you're cloaked with, the, with Jesus' robe and the blood of Christ flows over you, then God sees you as righteous through the filtering lens of Jesus. That's why you're righteous. It's like Jesus puts a, a filter up. God looks at a filter and he sees, oh, this is the Jesus filter. Yes. Yes. You are righteous. Oh, God. I mean, really, do you realize the magnificence of what this is saying to us? And how the world needs to hear this message and how God is drilling it down to the Jews for 1400 years. And so we must come to the place of, of sacrifice, the cross, acknowledging our need for Jesus to die in our place. That's what this is about. That's what's taking place. That's why that altar is being laid out there to remind them. And we must repudiate our human works for salvation, recognizing that there is nothing, nothing. Nothing we can do 
or add to the work of God's substitution for our sin, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, how does that affect you in your daily walk? Here's how it does. Because as you live your life, and you know that God has forgiven you, you know that he saved you, and now here's what your mindset should be. Lord Jesus, what can I do for you? How can I be your hands and your feet in this world? What work do you want done, Lord, to advance your kingdom? How can I be your tool? That's how you should think. Now, when you think that way, it's not like you're thinking, God, oh, if I do this, will I get a better mansion in heaven? Will I get a better location? I really want to be near the water. And I would like an, a, a room at a higher elevation. If I do this, if I give more money, if I do more charitable works, God, am, am I working my way into heaven? There you go again, John. Back to the all works. It's always about the works, thinking that you are working your way in some way. No, you're not. Whatever works that you do, you're doing to thank God. It's as if you are putting these as sacrifice at the feet of God and Jesus saying, Lord, I'm not worthy. I can't be worthy for what you've done. I could never thank you enough. And how do I do that? I do that by being the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. You want to know why God created you? You want to know why you're here? You don't have to go and read some volumes on philosophy. You don't have to read Plato or Socrates or Aristotle. Why am I here? I need to find the essence of why I'm here. I'm giving it to you in one verse. Ephesians 2.10. Created for good works by Christ Jesus that he hath before ordained. There it is. Your life is simple now. You don't need to knock yourself out. You don't need to go to Tibet and go up on a mountainside and put on a white robe and smoke pot. You don't have to do any of that. All right? God has made it so plain. And here's the thing, folks. Here's the thing about God. Here's the thing. Oh, it seems too simple. It seems too simple. Oh, no. The cross wasn't simple. Don't ever think the cross was simple. You, I mean, when he died on that cross that day, he had your name on his palm. He had your name. It wasn't an anonymous name. He had your name. It said John right there. He died for you. And so you understand this. And so you see, how, you see this passage underlying about how enormous God is telling us what it means, these substitutionary sacrifices, how we'll never live up to the law, how we never can, can live up to the law, and, and how God only wanted us to recognize that we needed a Savior. Uh, and so what an amazing passage this is, as you see God elevating the people of God as they're now traversing the promised land. And they're now walking in the promised land, uh, and we see who God is and how he's going to bless them. And now I gave you as part of this lesson this week, I, I wrote a passage on the mercy of God. Uh, and this comes out of the fact that one of the brothers spoke to me last week and said, as I read this passage, as I see this passage, one of the things that comes back to me is forgiveness. How God has forgiven them 
of their sins and their trespasses and allowed them to come into the promised land. And even when they violated his will, after, after they atoned and worshiped God, he allowed them to take the city of Ai and now gave them all the possessions, gave them everything. Gave them everything. And so this brother said to me, I'm so impressed with the forgiveness of God. And, and, and so I prayed about it this week, and I felt, felt that I needed to tie this whole issue up uh, with Joshua and the passage we read, understanding the theology of the mercy of God. Because as it relates to God, it's not just forgiveness. It's a base element of the characteristic of God that people do not understand, and it's mercy. And so what we see here, especially through chapter 7 and 8, we see the mercy of God coming down on the Jewish people after they were chastised for violating his commands. But once they had repented, once they had removed the evil, God continued to bless them. God forgave them and extended his mercy to them. And so what we see here is the overwhelming character of God. It is mercy. Let's understand that. It's not wrath. Yes, there is a part of God that requires a judgment. Yes, that is the long-suffering part of God. Yes, we understand that God will look out at people and say that, yes, they are, they are sinners, but I will give them time to correct. I want to prove that to you. Turn to Genesis chapter 15, verse 12. And this is God speaking to Abram. All right, verse 12. As the sun was setting... Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Underline that. The sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. What is he saying to Abraham? There's going to be 400 years that's going to go by. 400 years are going to be, go by. And then after the 400 years, there's going to be a period of four generations of your descendants who will leave there. And that's effectively uh, the period of time of the wandering uh, in the desert. And when they will finally come back after that period of time, which comes to about 450 years or so, they will come back and they will take the land that is currently in possession by the Amorites, which are the Canaanites. And the reason I'm not giving it to you now is that the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And I think God is saying that about a lot of places in this world right now. The sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. What does that mean? It means that God has a clock He's got a clock, and he gives you time. This is the mercy of God, allowing you time, giving you a period of time to repent. These people were awful. They were pagans. They were into uh, human sacrifice. This was an awful situation taking place here. And yet, God 
gave them time. He didn't destroy them immediately. He gave them effectively 450 years. And so you see it. This reflects the overwhelming character of God, which is mercy. Now, mercy and wrath are a matched pair of God's moral characteristics. Mercy and wrath. Uh, the former is exercised on the repentant, meaning what? God dispenses mercy to those who ask for forgiveness. There's no place that I can find in Scripture where someone asked in a broken heart with a true act of repentance that God didn't give them uh, mercy. Uh, but uh, wrath, the wrath of God, the judgment of God, is reserved for those who are not repentant, who are not sorry, who do not come with a broken heart. And so these characteristics, mercy, the overwhelming character of God, and wrath, show the overall consistency of God. They are exercised on two different objects. Mercy is deeply rooted in the unchangeable nature of God. I want you to say, know that. Mercy, you are worshiping a God who is merciful, who is merciful, who loves you and cares for you. The ultimate act of mercy is this, that God seeing the depraved nature of humanity did not just wipe out humanity. After all, he wiped out Sodom and Gomorrah, right? He did that, but and he would have saved Sodom and Gomorrah if it, if it were down to, I believe, what did it get down to? Ten? Ten righteous men, right? Ten! Ten! Ten in this whole city, I will save them. No, guess what? There's not ten. There's no one. There's not one. And so the wrath of God is dispensed. And so what you see is God looking at this world, I honestly believe this, looking at this world and ultimately having the mercy to say, I will save this creation. I will save this creation. I will send them Jesus Christ. I will bankrupt heaven. I will take the total essence of goodness out of heaven. The very personage who created the universe, I will take that person who will come voluntarily to this world and allow himself to be put on a tree and murdered for these people because I am merciful towards them. I mean, really, when you see that and you understand that God's unfailing love is incredible uh, for people who are redeemed, it is, he is maintaining love to thousands upon thousands upon millions of people uh, uh, and forgiving their wickedness and rebellious, rebelliousness in every way. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Make no mistake about it. At some point in time, God brings the curtain down. He brings it down. He waits patiently, allowing people to come to God. He is slow to anger, slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion. Turn quickly to Numbers chapter 14. Numbers 14, verse 18. Now, verse 17, we'll start. Now may the Lord's strength be displayed just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the father to the third and fourth generation. That does not mean that he's punishing children who are innocent. It means that children who are conspiring in sin who are guilty of the same sins 
of the Father where the sin is one conspiratorial blanket, that that sin is punished, not just to the Father, but to those that follow the Father. And you understand this. You get an understanding of, of who it is. So God's mercy is everlasting. It is eternal. His, he is faithful forever in his covenant and, and mercy. But what does he say? He says in Deuteronomy, if you pay attention to these laws and are careful to follow them, then the Lord your God will keep his covenant of law with you as he swore to your fathers. If you keep his law. And then you say, I can't keep his law. And then he says, accept my son as your sacrifice. Because as you accept Jesus Christ as your sacrifice, then I see him. I see you through the filtering lens of him. And now you are righteous. That's your righteousness. Your righteousness is Jesus. And this all comes to you because of the overwhelming mercy of God. Amen. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you for this message. I thank you for the words that you've given us. Lord, as we see your character and understand your great mercy, Father, towards us, we recognize the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. How you bankrupted heaven for us, for this miserable human race. Lord, help us to be ever conscious of what you've done for us. Help us, Lord, to recognize the sin and iniquity in our lives. Help us, Lord, to come to that altar and to sacrifice to you and to Jesus, to thank you for what you've given us, to change our lives, to be able to be the kind of Christians that you want us to be in this world, to be able to minister, to be your hands and your feet in this lost world. Bless our men, Lord. Protect them and be with them this week and bring them back safely next week to continue the study of your word. We put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for listening to 66 Lessons for Life, the men's Bible study taught by John Garippa and recorded live at the Naples Conference Center in Naples, Florida. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding so that you, the man of God, would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. For more information about the program or attending the Naples Men's Bible Study at the Naples Conference Center, go to our website at 66lessonsforlife.com.